The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. I want to thank you for listening. I want to remind you to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, please check out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Most of these interviews that we're doing are videoed. And so if you preferred to watch us talk, which sometimes is kind of interesting, then please check out our YouTube channel by the same name, The Addiction Podcast Point of No Return. And subscribe there as well. So today we have an interview with the mother of a young man who died from an overdose. And we're going to talk to her and find out the story of her son and also what she's doing to help others not experience this going forward. So without further ado, let's talk to Lisa Busby. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today and for being willing to share your story. Thank you, Joni. I really appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. Um, you, we're going to get to what happened with your son. Do you have other children? No, my son Cannon was my only child. Okay, fair enough. And tell me what, tell me the history with what happened with Cannon. Do you know when he started on drugs? Yes, yeah, so Cannon started dabbling with drugs when he was about 13 years old. Um, he was doing it to fit in with other friends that were outside of his social group that I think he wanted to be a part of his social group. And he believed that he would be a lot cooler if he uh, started using drugs with them. And he started off smoking marijuana. Um, he selected a bad group to socialize with, but that was his choice. So he did start very early at about the age of 13. Okay. And were you aware at the time? So what happened was we weren't aware at the time he started using. It was probably, I'm going to guess, about six months into his use that um, we came home um, from an Oscar party back in, uh, in February. And um, we discovered him uh, laid across his bed asleep and in his bathroom uh, we found some marijuana and some paraphernalia in there. So it was at that time that we realized that he was starting to experiment with drugs. Okay. And what did you do at that point? So we did some research uh, looking for a therapist that we might be able to work with with Canon. So that was our thought about our initial uh, approach we did some really good research and came upon a therapist that we worked with for the next couple of years with Canon. And um, so that was our starting point in the hopes that we could really, quite honestly, just get him to stop using drugs. I think that we were quite naive about that looking back now. But we started out with that therapist and Canon um, went with us um, to the therapy and we started digging in um, as to some of the history of why he was using. 
Um, and it wasn't just about his social group. His father and I had also gone through a divorce when he was about five years old, and he had some he had some hard feelings around that and some anger and resentment, which eventually um, led to depression and anxiety. Wow. We had also noticed that his grades had started to slip and um, that he wasn't concerned about improving things at school. And what happened as a result of seeing the therapist, we had drawn some boundaries for him about his drug use and um, Unfortunately, he ignored those boundaries and continued to use. And this went on for about a year. And I felt like it continued to get worse because at some at one point I did discover um, some Xanax. And so I knew at this point that he was now experimenting with harder drugs at this point. So I reached out to his father who lives in San Diego and I explained to him the situation and that I felt that we needed to come up with a better solution, that it just wasn't working out and I wasn't making any progress on my end. So his dad and I agreed um, that he would come down to San Diego and attend a private boys school in San Diego where he would also board there. Um, this is called the Army Navy Academy. Okay. So I felt and, and like... And how old was he at that point that he went to the Army Navy Academy? At that point, Academy? he was 14 years old. Okay. So we got him into Army Navy Academy, and he seemed to do well there. Uh, he excelled. He became class president. He started playing football. He joined the band. Uh, he really got involved in a lot of the different school activities, and we both sighed a sigh of relief, thinking that we had made um, the right decision. And about probably four months, uh, actually it was longer than that, probably about nine months into his time at Army Navy Academy, I had gone down there for the weekend to spend the weekend with him, and I had gotten a hotel room for us. And we came to the hotel room and he just seemed absolutely exhausted. So he laid down across the bed and went to sleep. And I noticed that his cell phone kept going off like constantly. It was constantly lighting up and more and more messages kept coming in. So after about six hours of sleep, I thought he's not going to wake up. I think he's going to sleep through the night here which I thought was just because he was physically exhausted, not a problem. But I did get very curious about the messages that were coming in. And I have to admit that around 11 o'clock that night, I picked up his cell phone and I started looking at the messages and it was painfully apparent at that point in time that he was actually selling drugs to other students on campus at his school. Wow. And so I was going to say, I assume you asked him about that. I did the next morning and he completely denied it. However, I had the proof on the cell phone. So his initial reaction, which you would understand is to get very defensive and get very upset about the fact that I did violate his privacy by looking at his messages. 
And I own that. I said, you're absolutely right. In any other situation, I would apologize for this because it wasn't my right to do that. But I did. And here's what I've discovered. And you know, I'm just going to say, you weren't wrong to do that. Now, it would be different if he were sitting there being completely normal, watching TV, and you decided to read his cell phone. But you've got a young man who's now been virtually unconscious. I don't mean, I mean, sleeping unconscious for six hours in the middle of the day, whose cell phone is going off all the time. I'm just, I just want to say this because I know the parents listen and I know that there's concern there with crossing that line, but better that you cross the line to find out something like this. It was better. I absolutely have no regrets about it because I don't know how else I would have found out given that he was eight hours away from me in school. And, you know, by all accounts, he appeared to be doing well. His grades were good. He was showing up on time. He was participating in activities, but he had a side business going on. Wow. So what we did after that was I regrouped immediately the next day with his dad and his stepmom, and we started talking to the school about what some of the options may be. That was that seemed like the logical path to follow because we did want to make the school aware of what we had discovered and also because of other students being involved. And did they have we, any clue whatsoever? They had no clue whatsoever. Oh. And how can that be? It was a boarding school, Lisa. How can that be that they had no clue? I have no idea. I'm sorry. They just... I can't speak for the other students, but what I what I learned about Cannon very quickly is that he was really good at hiding his drug use. He was really good at it, and it was sort of a Jekyll and Hyde. Um, I think, you know, by day he was one, and by night he was another. And he but was he, using it while he was selling, right? That's correct. Okay. He was essentially taking his cut of the drugs for himself, which I'm sure he was either getting for free or at a much reduced price. Right. Do you, did you know, or do you know now where he was getting the drugs from? I don't. Okay. I don't. Okay. So I kind of stopped you in the middle of your story. So you talked to the school to tell them about it. What happened after that? So they recommended, um, the school is in Carlsbad, California, and they recommended a program called Phoenix House, which was literally a couple blocks away from where the school is located. And they suggested that we talk to them about doing an outpatient program. And we did, my husband and I and, and Cannon and his stepmom um, and his dad, we all met with uh, Phoenix House and decided to try it on an outpatient basis. Now, I should add that Cannon was very, um, very angry about it, very resentful, and seemed very entitled and privileged that somehow this was uh, not who he was. He was not a drug addict, and he really did not belong in this place. But he agreed to do it because we made it a condition of going to school and he really liked the school and we knew that he wanted to stay there. 
So we told him that if he wanted to stay, he had to participate in this program on an outpatient basis. So essentially he would go to the program uh, after school several days a week. And part of the program requirement is that you also have to be drug tested. Mm. So we thought that that was a very reasonable solution, particularly that he was going to get drug tested. So we got a call one day from the director of the program and he said, I have no doubt that he's still using. I have no doubt. And we said, well, how could he, how could he be using? Because he's passing the drug test. He said, I don't know how he's passing the drug test. He's doing something to manipulate the drug test and we cannot for the life of us figure out what it is, but he is passing the drug test. But we're confident by the way he shows up for our meetings that he is using. Wow. Okay. What, what now? What are you supposed to do now? We do now, right? So while we're trying to figure out what to do, I think probably maybe less than a week went by and we got a call that he had left the program one night and he had gone off with some friends and it turned out that he went off to use drugs with some friends and um, this time he was caught by the school because they did it very close to the school and um, they threatened to expel him which they probably should have done, but it was his first strike from their standpoint, so they did not expel him. Lisa, what drugs was he using at the time? At this time, he was using, um, uh, he had already progressed now into Xanax, uh, ecstasy, and we believe that he was also trying oxycodone as well. Okay. Okay. So his drug use was definitely getting more sophisticated. And we knew that he was continuing to use by a couple things that were going on with him at school. And so we again reached out to uh, a therapist, the one that we had been working with here. And he suggested that we consider sending Cannon to a wilderness program, which are quite common, um, particularly with young, underage, male and female you know, not adults, but, you know, teenagers. Yeah, I've heard it's of It's not uncommon when the parents feel like they've exhausted everything that they can exhaust and they're still continuing to have children that experience with drugs, then they oftentimes look to, an ex- uh, to a wilderness program such as this. They're very common. Most of them are in Utah, although they have them all over the country. And there's a large number of them out there. We did not know that at the time, but through the research that we did, we discovered that pretty quickly. Okay. We got a really good recommendation from our therapist um, to a gentleman who ran this wilderness program. He was the program director and we reached out to him directly to talk to him about Canon to see what he recommended and if this would be a good fit for him. And it turns out that it was a good fit, even in hindsight, and I'll come back to that later. In hindsight, it was a good fit. 
and we made the decision to send Cannon to the wilderness program um, on the 29th of December. And at that point, he was 15 years old. He was one of the youngest students to ever attend the program. So what happened was um, he started the program on the 29th of August. He was taken to the wilderness in the freezing cold of the high desert in Utah. And that was where he started his program. So needless to say, we had one angry boy on our hands. And we had been forewarned by the director that this is, this is standard protocol that the children, you know, the teenagers get very angry at their parents for forcing them to go to a program like this, particularly when they have to go live in the wilderness and they've been removed from their environment as they know it. Right. And guess what? They can't use drugs anymore. <clears throat> so most, most students probably spend eight or 10 weeks in the wilderness working through their steps. Cannon was there 16 weeks. He really had a difficult time. He really pushed back. He wasn't open to opening up. He wasn't really making progress with his therapy. We started doing phone calls with him uh, and his therapist once he had been there after a certain period of time. And we made baby steps, but we did not make huge steps until he had been there about 14 weeks. And I think quite honestly, he finally figured out that if he ever wanted to get out of there, he was gonna have to start talking. And he did. And then he started including us in those conversations. And then we were able to start making some progress with him pretty quickly. Okay, Lisa, how many years ago was that? I know you said he was 15, but how many years ago are we talking? So that would have been 11 years ago. Okay. 11 years ago. So that was our first, um, that was our first uh, experience with, uh, you know, a treatment program. And after he got out at 16 weeks, we thought naively that, you know, he would come back home, go to high school and that life would get back to normal, that he would be cured. Right. Little did we know that he was not going to be coming home anytime soon and that he still had a lot of work to do. So after the wilderness program, he went into an aftercare program and he spent the next 10 months in the aftercare program. And where um, was that? Where, where was the aftercare program? Was it in Utah? Was it? Yes. It okay. was in Salt Lake City. Okay. So initially he started out in a home with other, other males that were his age, and they also have a school on campus. So he was able to continue his education, but also doing a lot of very intense therapy. And um, after he made progress in the program, then they eventually moved him into a private home with four other boys and a director over the private home. And he ended up going to a charter high school there. Okay. Now I just have a question. When he was in the, um, either the wilderness 
program or what came directly after that, do they use any sort of uh, any sort of drugs like um, you know like sedatives or anything like that, or are they completely drug free? They are not drug free, although at the time that Cannon was in the program, he was not on any medication. Okay. Eventually, he got onto medication, but at that point in time, he was not on medication. And I was just um, curious. And I don't believe many of the other boys that he was in the program with, I don't believe many of them were on medication either. Okay. So then he was in a private home. He was in a private home. He went to high school. And then when school let out for the summer, he came home to his dad's for the summer and um, he worked. And the plan was that he would go back to Utah and that he would live in a private home with a family and continue going to school there until he graduated. But essentially what happened is after he came home for the summer and he did really well, he was not using drugs. And at that point it had been Wow, how long had it been? I want to say it had been about 14 months since he had used drugs at that point. Then when he came home, he was doing really well until the end of the summer, and then he started using again. He relapsed. And when he relapsed, he refused to come back to Utah. And so when he relapsed, he was actually at my house for a visit. And it was a really bad relapse. And um, my husband was out of town on business. So it was just he and I that were here. And I felt pretty helpless. So I reached out to his dad and I said, I need your help. We need to get him into a program as soon as possible. So we got him into a treatment program down in Southern California. And I, I, took him to the airport and the director of that program flew up to the Bay area and picked him up and flew back to Southern California with him. Lisa, do you have any idea why he relapsed? Did something happen? A bad breakup? I don't know. Did you have any, you know, at the time, I know that triggers, I know that Cannon had triggers and things that caused him to want to use drugs at that point in time, I didn't really know what they were. Okay. I do believe that he felt a lot of pressure to come back to Utah, that we as a family, his dad and I, really wanted him to come back to Utah. And um, he felt pressure to do that, and he did not want to. So that might have been part of it, wanting to have control. Okay. But honestly, Joni, I don't really know for sure what the triggers were at that moment in time. I understand. And, and that really began, that, that rehabilitation program began a long, long journey, really a 12-year journey of Cannon being in and out of rehabilitation programs. He was in 12 rehab programs in 12 years. Wow. And he had periods of time. He would be clean for up to 18 months at a time. Sometimes just a matter of months, sometimes a year, sometimes 18 months. But he always went back to the drugs. And whenever he went back, he always did 
more sophisticated drugs than the time before. Interesting. Need a, a better high, I guess. Yeah, I wanted to experiment exactly with different types of highs. Okay. So what happened then? What, what was, was the next So thing? I'm trying to think. Uh, that program lasted, he was probably there about eight weeks. And then um, at that point, um, so at this point in time now, he's not finishing his education. Okay. So he's not, he's not going to school at this point. And after he got out of that program, he went back and lived with his dad and he started working and, um, you know, Cannon never had a problem getting a job. That was always really easy for him. Um, he had the personality, he was bright, he was charming and people just globbed onto him and really liked him and always wanted to give him a chance. And, but at that point, the drug use, I think started to get really bad because he would work for a while and then he would relapse and he would lose his job. But then there came a point where he started to get arrested. So he would get arrested for possession. He would get arrested for shoplifting. Um, he would get arrested with, for being with someone that was in possession, that was actually selling drugs, even though they were not physically on his person. So this is where the cycle began of him breaking the law and starting to get arrested and go to jail for his action. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Yes, um, let me ask you a question, um, and if, if this is not something we, we want to talk about, I'm okay with that. Adrian was a stepbrother, I assume? That's correct. 
did Adrian figure into this period of time at all? Because we know that Adrian had a drug problem of his own. He did, although not as much at that point, uh, not at the, not as much at that point as he did later on. Okay. Now, yes, Adrian did originally introduce Cannon to marijuana back when they were, when Cannon was 13. Uh, that would have made Adrian about 19 years old. Okay. Much to our disappointment, he did um, he did experiment with him early on. But at this point that we're talking about now, he did not play into his drug use as much as he would come to later on. Okay. And then one other question: with the various rehabs that Cannon did, was was he ever like on methadone or Suboxone that you know of? He was not. Okay. Not until later. He did try it. He did try Suboxone later, but at this point, he had not gotten on it yet. Okay. So, so what happened was he would work, he would relapse, he would lose his job, or he would get arrested, and he would go to jail for a period of time. And in the early days, he didn't spend much time in jail. I mean, fortunately, California is the poster child for giving drug addicts um, second and third chances because they do believe in trying to rehabilitate them rather than incarcerating them. And it's a good point because incarceration is not a solution. Exactly, exactly. So this went on several times where he got arrested. He did a period of time. And then we did find, uh, we were introduced to a gentleman down in La Jolla, California, who is an education consultant. And he had um, the bandwidth to do some research for us and find a good program for Canon to go into. And so we were very fortunate that in one of the programs he went to, uh, this gentleman picked him up from jail and literally drove him to the rehab program uh, where he stayed um, for the next year got a job, did really well, and then he relapsed one day, and he got kicked out of the program, and then he lost his job. So this became a pattern over several years where he would um, end up going to jail. So now, now we definitely have a pattern because each time now that he's going to jail, they're less lenient on him, okay? Right. And now the probation periods are come, becoming longer. And they've, you know, I, I can't think of a better way to describe it other than the system had a tighter squeeze on him. And he did not do well with that. Understood. Oh, so he went to several more rehabs. And I would detail them out for you if we had the time. But we don't because he went to so many different programs. But um, eventually where he landed was after several years, he ended up in a program that he had been in previously that agreed to give him a second chance. And this was about probably five years ago. And his father was out of the country. It was over the Christmas holidays. And his father was out of the country with the family. And Cannon decided that he wanted to leave the rehabilitation program. He was going to leave, pick up, and move to Savannah, Georgia, because his half-sister 
lives in Savannah, Georgia, and he's very close to her. So he literally did just that. He left the program against their wishes, but keep in mind that he's now an adult. Right. And they can't force him to stay there. Right. I mean, so short, he, of a, short of a psychiatric ward, I don't think any rehab program can refuse to let someone go. They can't. You know? They begged him to stay, and he decided that he could never leave if his dad was in town. There's no way that he could scoot out of town without getting noticed. So he made up his mind that this is what he was going to do in the middle of the night, was to pack his car up, with all of his worldly possessions and drive from San Diego to Savannah, Georgia. And that's what he did. Okay. (sighs) That's what he did. So I knew he called me and told me that he was going to do this. I begged him not to, but his mind was already made up at that point. So I offered to give him some money on a, on a credit, on a visa card that he could use for gas and for a hotel room. He could not use it for cash. And um, that would help him get across country, or so I thought, which would take him three or four days to get to Savannah. And then on New Year's Eve, we had been talking while he was on his way there. And he had turned his compass on his phone so that I could track him and see where he was along the journey. And on New Year's Eve, we had been talking probably, you know, an hour or two before midnight California time. And he was just a couple of hours away from Savannah and he was looking forward to getting there. He was very tired. So I had been at a New Year's Eve party with some friends. And when I got home, I looked on my cell phone on the compass and I noticed it had not moved from our last conversation. So what I knew at that point was that two more hours had passed and he was still in the same location and he had not made it to Savannah. Wow. And there you are in San Francisco and you can't do anything about it. I can't do anything. I'm helpless. I'm absolutely helpless. And I started calling his phone, never answered. I stayed up most of the night calling. All I can do is call, and it goes straight to voicemail, which says that he's got the phone turned off or the battery's dead, but he's not moving. I can see on his compass that he's still two hours away from Savannah. So the next morning, um, I called his stepmom, who I'm very close to, and we literally laid out a map of Georgia. And we looked at where the compass showed that he was, and it was in a very remote part of Georgia. And we laid the map out, and we started calling all of the jails within the vicinity, within a 100-mile radius of where he last appeared on the compass. And we also, she took the jails, and I took the hospitals. And I started calling all of the hospitals and she called all of the jails and she found him. She found him in jail in a very small town in a a very rural county in Georgia, about two hours from Savannah. And what had happened was he had taken drugs 
and had drugs in his possession while he was on the way to his sister's house. He thought he had pulled off on the side of the road to sleep, but in fact, he had not pulled over on the side of the road and his car was essentially very close to being in the middle of a very rural highway. And it just so happened that uh, a policeman came along sometime in the middle of the night and found his car parked there. And when he went through his car, he found a lot of drugs on him. So he ended up arresting him and putting him in jail. So that was how his, that was how his move to Savannah started with a felony and six misdemeanors. Okay. That was it. And did he make it to Savannah? He ended up staying in jail because let me just say that in Georgia, they don't have sympathy for drug users. I can imagine. This is not California anymore. They will lock you up and throw away the key. So they kept him um, at that jail because they only have one judge that covers six counties. And they warned us that he could be in jail for a long time. And I think he ended up staying three months. Oh, my God. In the jail? He, in a very small jail that only housed six people. Oh, my gosh. And I did something I said that I would not do, which is my husband encouraged me to retain an attorney because he said he's in a rural town in you know, a remote part of Georgia. You don't know, you know, you don't, you don't know what's going on there. You don't know the lay of the land, and you better find someone that does. So I did my research and I found an outstanding attorney. I don't know how I got so lucky. Um, I feel so blessed to have found this gentleman, but he ended up taking my son's case on. And then he was able after about another six weeks to finally get him out of jail, but he was still facing those charges. So he still had to appear in court and, um, and the judge uh, worked with the attorney to get, uh, the charges dropped and to get a very lengthy probation placed on him. Okay. And then did he stay longer in Savannah or did he come back to California? No, he stayed in Savannah another two years. And in that two years, he was probably arrested seven times. He still continued to use. And what did his stepsister think? I mean, you know what? Joni, she, she decided that she had to love him from a distance because she did what she could. But, you know, as a family member of a drug addict, you can only do so much. And he did not want to be clean, and there was nothing that she could do that any of us could do to force him to be. And so she decided to love him from a distance and to let her know that she loved him. And when he decided that he wanted to be clean, that she was there for him. And the thing that, in spite of all of this that I'm telling you in, in Cannon's history, every time he relapsed, he got back up again, he dusted himself off, and he tried again and again and again. And he never gave up hope. And so during that time that he was getting arrested, that he was still using, he always had a job. He had, a, he had great friends and he had bad friends, 
but he had a wonderful network of friends around him. And he was able to support himself and, and he, he just kept using, but he kept trying to get clean. And he did go on Suboxone. He did try Kratom. He tried everything. He was absolutely scared to death of detoxing. Understood. Do you know what drug he was using recreationally at the time? Heroin. Okay. Okay. By now he's moved to heroin. Yes. Okay. And this was his drug of choice. All right. What brought him back to California? He was, he was in jail for the umpteenth time. And I had made a decision to do the hardest thing that a mother, that a parent ever has to do. This is really hard. I understand. So I went with his stepmom and we flew back to Georgia, to Savannah. And we moved everything out of his apartment and we put it into storage. And um, I went to the jail and I told him in my one visit that I had with him that I had done everything I could possibly do that there was nothing more that I could do to help him until he was ready to help himself. And I told him that I never gave up hope on him because he never gave up hope on himself. And as long as he had hope for himself, that I would have hope for him. But that as a parent and as a mother, there was nothing else I could possibly do to win his war on drugs. And I said, you're on your own now, buddy. And he said, well, mom, what will I do when I get out? I won't have any place to go. And I said, I realize that. And I will help you find a men's shelter. I, I can help you figure out where to go, but I cannot help you any longer. And I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. So that was um, one of the hardest things I've ever done. And, I can imagine. So... He sat there in jail for a long period of time, and um, his dad had learned about a program called Narconon, and at that point, you had brought up Adrian, his stepbrother, and by that point, um, both his stepbrother Adrian and his stepsister Giannina had gone through the program at Narconon and had had a lot of success with it. And so his dad really wanted me to talk to the program director about this program to see if it might be a good fit for him. So I did. It was like, um, I felt like someone had thrown me a lifeline. Um, And Fabian, who was the program and still is the program director at Narconon, worked alongside his dad and I for months worked alongside the attorneys, both on this end, as well as in Georgia. I mean, he was a lifesaver for me. And he worked with us and the attorney to get Cannon out of jail and to get him back to California so that we could get him into this program. And I don't know if the stars aligned. I know that he did a tremendous amount of work, but I think everything just came together and Quite honestly, Joni, what Cannon had decided during that time he sat in jail was that he was tired. He was tired of living his life the way that he had been living it. 
he looked at his rap sheet and he looked at how many times he had been arrested in 10 years. He looked at how many rehab programs he had been in. And I think he was just physically and mentally exhausted. I can imagine. So he turned himself over willingly. He did not go fighting this time. And he did go fighting every other time. Understood. And this time, this time he did not. He was tired. And I knew that he was tired. And I felt like he was ready to surrender. Okay. So when did he start the Narcanon program? He started a year and a half ago. It was August of 2000. Let me think about this. A year and a 19. I guess that would have been August of 2018. Okay. And how long was he there? He was there for about a year and a half, just under a year and a half. And, and was that whole time doing the program or was part of that time when he was working there? So he was in the program. Um, he was in the program for about a year. And then afterwards he began working there, which we were thrilled with. You know, we wanted him to stay in that environment. We felt like it had the structure that he did so well with. And, um, and it gave him a lot of self-confidence and it really built his self-esteem. Right. Now, somewhere in there, um, Adrian had reverted and become involved in, I don't know how to say it, in dealing drugs, right? Correct. Adrian, so at this point now, Adrian had been to Narcanon, I think, twice and had relapsed. And not only had he relapsed, but then he got involved with a really bad gang and he started selling drugs. And um, both Fabian, the director at Narcanon, and Cannon worked so diligently to try to save Adrian. They tried really hard to get him back into the program. And they would go and find him, and they would visit with him, and they would beg, and they would plead. And Adrian would say that he would come to the program. But quite honestly, he had other reasons that he was fearful of coming to the program and how it might expose his family. (coughs) Interesting. So unfortunately they were not able to get him there uh, and they, they, they held on to hope that they would, but unfortunately they were not able to before he passed. Okay. So then Cannon was working there and doing there doing phenomenally well but last november last october adrian um was brutally murdered and it was a really sad unfortunate circumstance and it really devastated canon because he had always been so close to adrian and so after Adrian passed, the time there at Narcanon for him became very difficult because nothing that had nothing to do with Narcanon. It's just that he was working there and the stress and the guilt. He had so much guilt about not being able to save Adrian and to be able to get him to come to the program. He felt like he could have done something 
something different if he had just tried harder. And I think what was really hard for him to see, you know, as still a young adult, was that people went on with their lives. And he found that he could not go on with his life, that it really consumed the better part of his days. And he was very worried about it and very stressed about the fact that he could not save him. And it made him very sad. And I think that it was, um, it was a very difficult time for him. Understood. So what happened next? So unbeknownst to us, well, let me back up for a second. So Cannon left Narcanon, let's see, Adrian passed in October, and Cannon decided to leave Narcanon um, to move back to San Diego uh, at the end of December, early January timeframe to go to work uh, in his, one of his dad's companies. And um, he decided that he and his girlfriend were gonna live with his dad for a short period of time until they could get on their feet and get their own apartment. And um, he just did, he just blossomed. He did so phenomenally well in his work, was getting accolades from everyone that he worked with was really enjoying it, but keep in mind, in the back of his mind, he's still struggling. And he was struggling a lot more, I believe, than any of us knew at the time. He was really still trying to come to grips with Adrian's death, and he just could not, he just could not get past it. So he relapsed sometime, I'm going to say, in the February uh, time frame. And again, I'm just making an educated guess here. Um, he relapsed and um, some people, some family members knew about it. However, I did not. And it wasn't until later that he did tell me that he did relapse, but I didn't know that he was still actively using. Um, and then there was in early March, uh, on March 3rd to be exact, he showed up at work one day and he seemed to be out of it. He seemed to be nodding off, um, you know, eyes kind of rolling around in the back of his head. Um, the office staff got really concerned about him and they called 911. Um, and the paramedics came and he seemed to be doing better by the time they got there. And I don't um, think that they really had to do anything or dispense anything at that point in time. I think he convinced them that he was okay. Um, and the EMTs left. Um, and then after that, he got into his car. He was really upset that, the, that he had been, you know, I don't want to say exposed, but he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed by the fact that, you know, the whole office saw this happening right. and that, you know, the paramedics had come to the office and now, you know, his secret had been exposed, if you will. And so he got into his car and he, um, he drove to his dad's house and he had a wreck on the way there. Well, it just so happens that his dad had been notified about what was going on in the office and he had reached out to Fabian at Narcanon to go to the house to talk to Cannon. 
um, about the possibility of returning to Narcanon. And it just so happened that Fabian uh, and another one of his colleagues were driving by Cannon's car right after he had the accident. And he was able to take him, Cannon was not harmed, and he was able to take him back to his dad's house. And unfortunately, Cannon got very angry with Fabian. And he wasn't, he was just angry. He was angry about getting discovered and exposed, in my opinion. And he knew that if Fabian was there, that there might be a strong possibility that he was going to have to return to rehab. And it could have been any rehab. You I understand. Know, it wouldn't have mattered which rehab it was. No, I understand. He got very upset and he chose to leave on foot and he left his dad's house. And that was the last time anyone saw him. And um, Fabian stayed at the house that night. But Cannon did not return home until probably, I don't know, maybe around one o'clock in the morning. And uh, unfortunately, he took a deadly cocktail of drugs. And uh, his girlfriend discovered him the next morning. And he had passed sometime in the middle of the night. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Joni. I just... Mother to mother, it's just devastating. It is. And it is. But you know, thinking about this, knowing that we were going to talk about it, right? You can't, you can't be with your loved one, twenty four seven, and ultimately they have to make choices and you can't make them for them. And, and there can be, it only takes one bad choice in this case to be the one that, you know, ends his life. And yeah, I, yes. And I, you know, I want to say that I know that Cannon did not take his life intentionally I know that it was an accidental overdose and um, that he did not want to die. But it just goes to show you when you are using drugs and you put together a deadly combination or even a bad drug, that it will take your life. It will take your life. Yep. And it can and it will. Yep. Do they, do they know what drugs he had taken? We haven't received the toxicology report yet, but we will within the next 30 days. Right. So what, I know that you have some plans. Please share with our listeners what your plans are going forward to deal with this. Well, as I mentioned early on in our conversation, you know, I told you that I never gave up on Cannon because he never gave up on himself. You know, every time he used drugs for a period of time and he would always, he would always get himself back on the wagon and he would try again and again and again to stay clean. And I think hope is the word that resonates most with me because even though I've lost my war on drugs with my son and even though I lost him, I still have hope. And I choose every day to have hope when I wake up. 
but and my hope is that I can save other young adults who are in the same situation as Canon was in. And I want to work with adults who want help, who truly want help, and who want to be clean and drug-free. Okay, so I'm starting a foundation called Canon's Fund that will uh, scholarship young adults who are interested in going to a rehab program and interested in finding a clean life and being able to get their lives back on track. And one of the things, Cannon was very empathetic and he always, in some ways, had a guilty conscience about the fact that he could afford to go to a rehab due to his parents helping him, but so many people couldn't. And that is something that I want to be able to, to change, you know, one adult at a time. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting this going. I think, I think it's awesome. I think it's amazing that you, you want to do this because you don't want other mothers to go through what you're, you've had to go through. And I think that um, I, I know Cannon would really be proud. He, he, I absolutely think he would be. And I'm really looking forward to getting it started and to, to really giving others the hope that we always had for Canon. I think that's awesome. And I think the message of hope is something that we push over and over again on the podcast. And I think for you to continue that message, I think is, is huge. Me too. Thank you, Jenny. So as you get the foundation set up, please be sure and give us the information so that we can tell our listeners about it as we go forward. I know that you're, you know, you're still in the, um, the formative stages. So as you get it set up and you have a way to, to find out about it, um, please let us know. I will, Joni. And thank you for having me as a guest today. I really appreciate you, uh, you inviting me to come on. Thank well, you. You're welcome. But before I let you go, um, please, if you, as a mom who's gone through this, we know that we, we know that we have people listening who have loved ones who are addicted. If you could give them one message, what would it be? Don't ever give up. Fair enough. Lisa, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Joni. I apologize for losing it in that interview, but being a mother, the subject of a mother losing her son to addiction breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart. Um, I don't really have much to add. Hopefully by the time this podcast goes live, uh, the Canon Fund will be up and running, and I will include that information at the end of this episode. So we'll be back again. We have a couple of great interviews scheduled already to uh, be done, and we will talk to you again. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narconon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononojai.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.